Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 62. How do you know you're using the correct data structure for your Python project? There are so many built into Python and even more that are importable from the collections module. This week on the show, David Amos is back and he's brought another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. And we discuss a recent three-part video course on selecting the ideal data structure, along with comparing the types of dictionaries, data records, arrays, stacks, and more, David covers a recent RealPython article about the name tuple. This deep dive covers how to use the name tuple to write cleaner Python code. We also discuss new articles from previous guest, Brett Cannon. He's added two posts to his Python Syntactic Sugar series about unraveling the pass and with statement. We cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including async and Flask 2.0, Python projects on GitHub that are examples of best practices and good architecture, how SpaceX sort of lands Starship, the new TI-84 calculator with Python, and building a Python spell checker. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean's app platform. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, David. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, excited to cover all these topics this week. We got a bunch of interesting stuff to dive into. Yeah. Do you want to start it off? Sure. Okay. Yeah, my first one I brought with me today is an article called Write Pythonic in Clean Code with Name Tuple by our uh, good friend Leodanis Pozo Ramos. Total introduction and pretty thorough explanation of what named tuple is, which is probably... If I had to guess, I don't have any like data to back this up, but if I had to guess, it was probably the most used data structure from the collections module. Yeah. And so name tuple is like like a normal tuple. It's it's very similar API. You can, you know, it's a sequence structure. You can put things into it. It's immutable, but you can give each slot in the tuple a name, almost like a class attribute. So it's a really great way to create a class like experience but maintain the immutability that you get from a from a tuple and he talks about all the different features that it, it has how to create them converting between name tuple instances and dictionaries and things like that and then a kind of a little field guide to using name tuple to write kind of quote-unquote more pythonic code so you know one of the big benefits is that you get these names of these you know, of the slots in the in the tuple, which makes your code a lot easier to read and understand and adds a lot of context to that. He also talks about how you can use it to return multiple named values from functions. It's kind of a theme here, right, is, you know, the idea that naming things is always a good idea. So leaning into the that feature of, of being able to name everything. It talks about using name tuples to reduce the number of arguments to functions, and and using them to read tabular data from files and databases. So so uh, plenty of examples there. 
uh, to look at for ideas of how to use Nametuple in your own code. Uh, he also compares Nametuples to other data structures and sort of, you know, what what are the main differences that they, you know, they're generally more readable, that Nametuples are immutable versus mutable data structures like lists. Talks about, me- you know, memory usage and performance, things like that. And yeah, it's just a great introduction to the Nametuple, which I think, you know, once you've kind of learned the basics of Python and you know all the kind of built-in data structures that you don't have to import anything to use, then I think Nametuple is really one of the first like next steps that you should be should be aware of and and learn to use in in Python. So if you're at that spot, if you've never heard of Nametuple before, but you're familiar with all of the other built-in data structures, then this is a, a great next article for you to check out. We've touched on it a couple times here on the show. Uh, I think we had another article a couple of months back diving into name tuples. Yeah. But also we touched on something that I'm going to go much further into today, which is there was an article by Dan Bader, which was just about all these different forms of data structures, you know, throughout Python. And that's definitely one that's covered pretty heavily there. And so I'll, I'll talk about it some more there, but I, I think they're great. I mean, if you don't have to sort of build the whole class and, and right. still get the dot notation, you get all this other kind of nice functionality out of it. Name tuples are a really nice reason for <laughs> importing them from the collections module to, to work with. Absolutely. Yeah, cool. Again, kind of going back in time and talking about a previous episode, episode 47, I had Brett Cannon on the show and we talked pretty in depth about unraveling python syntax mm-hmm. and he's been busy <laughs> he's been pretty busy over the last few months with the release of well i guess the beta release i guess you'd call it for python 310 yeah and new versions of python 39 and the python language summit yeah <laughs> which has been a lot going on <laughs> we'll talk about a little more and then this little thing that happened a little bit ago called pycon um, and so, yeah, so Brett's been pretty busy, so he hasn't been blogging a ton, but he just put up two more in the series going beyond what I spoke to him about. And this one's really kind of fun. It's just unraveling the past statement. Yeah. <laughs> so it's maybe one of the shortest ones that's there. And if you're not familiar with pass, if you haven't seen it in code before, it basically is a little block of code that, you know, if you want to define a function and then kind of as a placeholder, you can just simply put indented the word pass as a keyword in there and it does nothing, right. and, which is fine. And it's still, you know, as far as Python, uh, it's still readable and still works fine, but it, it just doesn't do anything. Or if you're building, you know, out if statements or some other kinds of things, you can use it inside there. And the you know the past statement he actually you know again unravels it and and goes into the C part of it and disassembles it and yeah it does nothing it has like two little steps the you know the, yeah. it, it returns none which kind of like the print statement does and a lot of people don't realize that but it's just a really kind of a uniquely Python concept there are other languages where you right. throw in like a an actual like comment type of code inside there that that's sort of formatted in a certain way to do it. And I was intrigued when I saw it the first time in Python. I'm like, oh, you can just write pass. <laughs> like right. it's a like it's like a game or something like that. I don't want to go right. this round. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So which is kind of cool. Yeah. So it's just a null operation when 
it's ex- executed, nothing happens. Yeah. So. And one thing that he mentions in the article, although there's not a lot of kind of fanfare around this, and it, I feel like it's just sort of mentioned in passing, but I think, you know, a lot of people wonder, like, why would something like this even exist, right? Like, why why would you even want to do this? Yeah. And he says, you know, the reason pass exists is that you can signal that something is purposely empty. And uh, that is the key concept. And I think that, you know, when you talk about, like we were talking about name tuple and readability, this kind of goes into that readability idea that, you know, making clear what your intentions are in the code. And, you know, if you have a case where like nothing is supposed to happen. Yeah, I actually have one right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm building this uh, project using CircuitPython. And I was thinking about this problem when I'm pressing a button because it's supposed to spit out a key command. And I'm like, I don't really want it to keep like, you know, depending on how fast the code runs, you know, even though people think Python is slow, it can still spit out hundreds of <laughs> repetitions of this letter uh, that I'm having right. it do on the keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> and I, so I, what I've done is just rigged a, a, a while statement that basically is this momentary switch while it's still down, pass, just don't do anything. Right. Yeah. You know, and so it, it basically, when that key finally is released or that, that button is released, then it'd go out. And so that was the easiest kind of thing I could build to kind of do that statement, you know, inside of it. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a great use case. And, uh, I think, you know, another, another case would be when, when, like, if you have a a conditional, like you're doing an if else, uh, or if elif else, uh, statement, and you have a case in that where like nothing is supposed to happen, you could just leave that out. Right. Right. Of your big if statement. But then, it's not clear, like, well, was that a mistake? Mm. Or, like, should it be in there? Did we forget something? You know, so... Right, the having that case and leaving it out thing. Exactly. Yeah. So putting it in there is just a way to, like, say, like, look, it's not an accident. Like, this really is not supposed to, to do anything. So there are really good reasons that you want something like pass to exist, so... Yeah. But I love, you know, it's it's the shortest... <laughs> I didn't count how many words it is, but, I mean, it's probably just, like, a few hundred. Yeah, it's <laughs> real short. Yeah. <laughs> Which is cool. Yeah. And then just a few days ago, he released the WIS statement, which we've talked a little bit about. Yeah. You know, sort of the enclosures of of the WIS statement and how it has, you know, kind of the special code built into it, these dunder methods of of enter and exit. And he goes into the details and and uses a sort of a CS term that I wasn't familiar with, this uh, resource acquisition is initialization, R-A-I-I, and I'll include a link to this Wikipedia article on it. Mm -hmm. But to illustrate how it goes, where it goes into details about using that as a lock example, and basically means that when you create an object, something happens, and by freeing or deleting the object, then something is undone. And so this kind of process of with, like within this enclosure, like something, you know, you're going in here, you're creating this resource, and then when that resource is done or that code is done, it, it basically kicks out. Right. And and the problem with Python is sometimes, you know, the garbage collection and and the way things are allocated and stuff is kind of out of your hands. And so having this statement allows, uh, you know, the sort of a guaranteed cleanup, you know, kind of built into it. And 
which, which is kind of a neat way that this context manager can kind of do that for you. So I won't, you know, go too deep into it, but again, it's fairly short, but it, it dives into the idea of this. And then he's using it kind of as an example of like locking code for, for changes. Again, if you're dealing with where you're having something be multi-threaded or, or some other kind of execution where you need this resource to be, you know, sort of by itself and not uh, get changed outside of something. And so it kind of uh, has this sort of locking mechanic that he's kind of using to explain it. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. I'm glad he's putting these out again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's I, he's very succinct. And I again, I really like the structure of that whole series. Yeah. He also has a recent post that, this is about a month ago, there was kind of a big brouhaha about open source and the idea of, you know, what is the responsibility as a maintainer that you have to like this entire vast world of, you know, <laughs> right. you know, of the users. And he has a really great article. It's called the social contract of open source. So I'll include a link to that too. So there's like three posts here, yeah. but I won't go too in depth into it. But the idea is this, this idea of like, you know, as an open source maintainer, you're basically giving something away for free. And that, should be a big part of the contract socially, <laughs> you know? And so the way that people sometimes uh, abuse that contract is just kind of gets out of hand and a little toxic. And so um, I like his explanations that are in there and we've talked about it a little bit, but this this does a, a good job of distilling his thoughts at least. So yeah, that is a good article. Yeah. So what's up next? What do you got next? Next one I've got comes from Patrick Kennedy over on the testdriven.io website. And it's called Async in Flask 2.0. So uh, the Palettes project just released major, m- new major versions of, I think, like every single one of their projects. And Flask being one of those is now at 2.0, which is a big, a big deal. And uh, it was released on May 11th. And one of the Big new features is it adds built-in support for asynchronous routes, error handlers, uh, before and after request functions, and something called teardown callbacks. So the, it adds all this async, re- uh, excuse me, it adds all this async uh, support. And this article kind of walks you through like what the support is and how it works, and you know, kind of Flask's approach to handling async. And one of the things that I found surprising, just because I wasn't following any of this it probably would have been surprising if i'd been following the development for a while but uh it does not use an ASCII server mm. it uses it still uses a traditional uh whiskey server and whiskey servers are synchronous so there's you know a big difference between how flask is handling this versus uh some of the other async frameworks but uh you can read about you know what all that is and and what it means and it gets into like why ASCII isn't isn't required and everything, but then it dives into, you know, how do you actually do this and how do you set it up? If you've done any async IO programming in Python, it's going to look very, very familiar to you. If you haven't done any async IO programming, then you're probably going to be confused <laughs> by it just because uh, async is not an easy thing to, to wrap your head around first time you take a look at it, probably even for many times you take a look at it. After that, it's a it's a it's a very different style of of programming, and, and the logic is it, it it can get complicated very very quickly. But it is an important thing to be aware of, and if you need 
the benefits that async uh, offers, then now Flask can, can do that for you. It talks about how to test async routes. And the beautiful thing about it is that since uh, Flask handles all of the async processing, basically nothing changes. If you if you want to use PyTest with Flask, you can go about it using the same way to, to test all of your async routes as well. It's got lots of examples in it, how to do like uh, asynchronous error handling, all that kind of stuff. It's also got a, a section on how you can mimic Flask 2.0's async support in any version of the Flask 1.x series. Mm, okay. Which is which is kind of cool. So if you want to kind of test out how it's going to work before you upgrade to 2.0 and and you know go that route, then you can kind of mimic it and and get a sense for you know how is this going to work with your application. There are though some differences there with how you would need to test that. So they they give some tips on uh, using the pytest asyncio plugin to to test you know async on Flask 1.x. So it's a good good article. It's not too terribly long. It gives a really good outline of of what the changes are, how it works, and and how you can start using it. What I was going to mention there is if somebody wants a, a deep dive, there's a really great async series by Lucas Langa. And we talked a little bit about it. He was actually developing it way back a year ago when we were had him on the show to talk about it. But he um, he's working for this new company and he dives really deep into basically, you know, all the different sort of functions. Uh, the company's called EdgeDB. The series, I know it's at least four videos, but it goes into it, lots of good examples, and he really does a good job of explaining it. Plus, he's done a few different talks, and we had him to talk about the async IO and music, uh, which was really kind of cool. So, And hope to have him on the show again soon. He did a, this FM synthesizer thing uh, at PyCon. That was really cool. Yeah. It's neat to hear, uh, you know, actual audio processing happening <laughs> via uh, Python and uh, bring it into uh, like an actual digital audio workstation. It was pretty slick. Yeah. I'm excited to hear about the new stuff in Flask. It's always kind of cool to keep seeing the palette projects kind of improve on them and all the way up to <laughs> version two now after being in the, the zero version forever. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there's... um. I can't remember. I don't know if we've had him on the, the show or not, but uh, David Lord uh, is one of the principal maintainers of all the, the palette stuff. And he had a, this is kind of unrelated, but he had a, well, it's not totally unrelated. It has to do with with the Flask 2.0 update and everything. But he had a, a Twitter thread on his experience of, for typing all this stuff. So he's gone and manually added type hints to all of the code in the in the palettes projects which i think was a pretty massive undertaking but that's one of the big things they've done now is it's all fully typed and has all that done so i'll, I'll dig up the link for that so we can put it in the in the show notes but it's a cool yeah cool thread yeah i'd like to include that DigitalOcean's app platform is a new platform as a service solution to build modern cloud native apps with app platform you can build deploy and scale apps and static websites quickly and easily. Simply point to your GitHub repository and let App Platform do all the heavy lifting related to infrastructure. Get started on DigitalOcean's App Platform for free at do.co slash realpython. That's do.co slash realpython. So my next one is a Reddit thread. We occasionally include these. Uh, especially when they get to be kind of a good resource again. Right. This 
goes back to a concept that I've used to have kind of a repeating question early on in the show, starting with episode nine, where I had a listener send in a, an audio recording, which you can still do <laughs> if you go to, go to uh, realpython.com slash podcast, you can still see a link there where you can ask a question. You can send it as an audio recording. And it was about leveling up your Python literacy, finding Python projects to study. And it was with uh, Cecil Phillip from Microsoft, and we talked a little bit about it. Yeah. And then again, I mentioned it with um, another guest, Kyle Stratus, who's been on the show with us and talking about this stuff. The Reddit thread is just full of these GitHub repos and other things that can help. And then I actually found some interesting books in it. So I want to include just a mention of a few things that are kind of cool call-outs. But it's basically Python projects on GitHub that are examples of best practices and good architecture. It's a pretty long title. A really common one that I hear mentioned all the time is uh, requests. And requests is under the PSF now. Mm -hmm. So you would see under PSF slash requests in GitHub. One that actually Kyle Stratus actually chimed in on the thread, which was kind of cool. And he mentioned one that he had mentioned on the show, which was Anthony Shaw's Wiley. And he actually talked about that in a lot more depth. Uh, Kyle had written a article for RealPython that's called, you know, basically sort of best practices on application layouts. Yeah. So again, I'll include links to that and which is a really great article, just kind of like, how should you lay out stuff? And again, it's kind of on the theme, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, some of the other ones that were mentioned that we talked about, we had that whole thing where I had a project and I talked about ERP next and their core code called Frappe that kind of was underneath it, which is a great project to study um, because it just, you know, if you're interested in ERP or you're interested in like, you know, the, those kinds of huge projects that can kind of run businesses with all that architecture, it is really well documented. Uh, Somebody mentioned cookie cutter, which you've probably maybe seen before getting stuff set up. Um, Mozilla has a project called Kitsune, which is actually Fox in Japanese black uh, by Lucas Longa again. And then a series of books came up, a series of books that are on a site, aosabook.org. And the book is, that that's the title there, The Architecture of Open Source Applications. So AOSA. At that site, there's actually four different books, not only The Architecture of Open Source Applications, which has a lot of contributors and a couple editors that kind of kind of manage it all together. But there's a volume two of that. Another book titled 500 Lines or Less. So kind of examples of code, uh, very clean kind of tight code there. And then uh, one building on top of that called The Performance of Open Source Applications. So I think all four of those books might be of interest. And the languages vary, which is actually kind of cool. Again, to see structural stuff in other languages is is nice. I do see some examples in Python in there, but there are lots of other ones that are like JavaScript or other places. Uh, and then finally, I'll link back to another site that's part of the the real Python universe <laughs> uh, called the Hitchhiker's Guide to Python. If you're not familiar with that site, it's got a lot of great advice. And there's an article on you know, literally called Reading Great Code, and it's lots of good examples there. So great thread, lots more resources kind of continuing that theme. And um, I'll still Try to ask some guests in the future here that question again if they have other repos that they think would make for good code reading. So yeah, it's a it's a good thread. There's lots of good lots of good advice and good good projects on there. I was happy to see that some people mentioned 
some of the, you know, just built in like Python standard library yeah. stuff as well. Cause there's a lot uh, of Pathlib was one of them. Yeah. There's a lot of good stuff. I think Pathlib and statistics is another one they mentioned. There's, there's some other good ones uh, too, but uh, yeah, it's, it's nice to see that. Cause there's a lot of good stuff even just in Python yeah. itself in the, in the standard library. But yeah, it's, you know, it's one of these discussions. I feel like it comes up every few months. <laughs> yeah. There's another thread of like bubbles up, <laughs> but it just goes to show like there's, you know, people need this kind of stuff. It's, and, and one of the best things you can do to level up your programming knowledge is to just read a whole bunch of other people's code because you're going to learn a lot from that. So, you know, and I'll be honest, you know, it's, it's great to know like, where where all the good stuff is and like what are some examples of like really good because sometimes you want to read with like i want to learn the best practices here i want to see like what is yeah a really well structured application look like or something along those lines there's a lot you can learn from reading poor code as well sure <laughs> but you get you know you have to kind of go into it with the mindset of like you know what are the mistakes that are that are being done here but but in general just reading code is you know when i was in college, I'm, I'm minored in computer science. So I took a ton of programming classes and computer science classes. And one of the things that I noticed, because I also did tutoring while I was there, I worked in a tutoring lab. And one of the things that I noticed is the, the, the folks that were consistently doing really well in their programming classes were the ones that were not just trying to hack out a solution to something to turn in for their project but we're interested in seeing other people's solutions and reading and understanding them. And so that's just, a, I think, a big part to just being successful in learning any any programming language. Yeah, I could imagine that just sharing your code with fellow students and getting their input right. would be huge. I mean, that's obviously something that would happen in like you know a writing course or other yeah, things like exactly. that or music. And, and so those kinds of... Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to make yourself vulnerable sometimes to, to want to share that way, but, but definitely like just, you know, Hey, I don't understand what this is doing. Okay. Well, that means I need to increase my documentation or, you know, or whatever. Um, those, those are, those are important parts of it and seeing well-written code. Like I was reading through some of them and I looked at, uh, the Wiley code that Anthony Shaw's project. And I, I really like structurally how he was just laying stuff out. It was, it was really useful for, for learning a lot about just like things like, you know, how to document your functions and adding those, those additional uh, notes and stuff like that. It was very consistent the way it was laid out, which is cool. So what do you got next? The next one is a really fun article I found. It's, it's on medium, but I don't think it's set up for like a paid deal. So it's, it's freely available and won't count against your, your medium number of articles you get each month. It's called How SpaceX Lands Starship, sort of. <laughs> and this is this comes from Thomas Godden. The subtitle is How I Accidentally Discovered What I Already Somewhat Knew. Optimization methods are at the heart of landing rockets. So if you if you're interested in rocketry and you know in particular if you are mesmerized by watching the landings of these rockets, which I think is just a really incredible engineering feat they've they've managed to to pull off and are now doing successfully quite quite often at least with the uh, with the falcon rockets I guess starship is kind of a new yeah. a new one that they've uh, they've just i think they just recently had the first successful landing but this one this article takes 
an idea this guy had while while watching uh, while waiting for one of the launches. He decided to pull together some of his knowledge of dynamics and see if he could get a little like 2D simulation to perform what he calls the epic flip, which is the, the you know when it's it, Starship starts as like almost doing like a like a belly dive kind of, and then it has to do this flip to get itself upright before it before it lands. So he threw together this little simulation just using like a rectangle to represent Starship and put a, a little model together and set it off to determine like what the best trajectory was. And you know, he wasn't like telling it like you need to flip at this time or anything like that. It was basically he put in all the all the parameters gravity, you know, all this kind of stuff and had it start at a, at a certain altitude and know where the ground is and say, okay, find me the best way to, to, to land this thing. And when he, he, there's a little YouTube video that he's embedded into the article where he puts his simulation next to like a side view of the, of the actual starship landing. And it's just mind blowing how spot on his simulation ended up being. It's a beautiful thing to watch that his simulation is just working beautifully. Of course it's two dimensional. So this is not like, right. He didn't somehow discover like exactly what's what SpaceX is doing here because it's far less complicated, but still a really neat result. He dives into, you know, how it works and uh, what this thing called trajectory optimization is. How do you find the optimal trajectory between two points in space and talks about, you know, in, like, how do you, how do you measure what, what does optimal mean? Is it the shortest distance? Is it, you know, there's all these different things that you can consider optimal there. And then what do you do if you've got like, like the example he gives is like a very simple example is I want to walk from my living room to the refrigerator in my kitchen. And well, you know, you're just walking in a straight line is going to get you there you know, quickly and efficiently. But what if there's like a giant pit of death between where you are and (laughs) any refrigerator? Well, now, like you don't, if you just walk in a straight line, you're going to fall into that pit and and regret it. So, you know, now we need to go around it. So that comes in, that ties into the notion of something called a cost function. Talks about, you know, what all these are. I love how uh, approachable his explanations are. And he's got some really awesome, like hand-drawn diagrams that he's got for all of this, which adds kind of a fun element to it. Then he talks about, you know, picking your constraints and and what those mean to an optimization problem. Then he dives into, you know, how you actually code this up. And he uses a library that I'd never heard of. It's called CAS ADI or CAS ADI. Hmm. It's an open source tool for uh, nonlinear optimization and algorithmic differentiation. So pretty, pretty mathy yeah. uh, stuff going on there. But uh, I'd never heard of it. It's a looks like a really interesting tool so that's uh that's something if if uh, you're interested in this kind of stuff you might want to check that out but uh he walks through you know setting up the the code how he did it plotting everything with uh with matplotlib and then I believe has a link to the github repo where you can see all of his code there so just a really fun article and uh if you're into this kind of stuff even if you're not into like spacex and landing rockets there there's a lot you can learn just on, you know, these optimizations and optimizing trajectories that has applications, you know, far beyond just space. I mean, yeah. there's lots of applications in space with like satellites and things like that. But, uh, you know, self-driving cars and robotics and, and all that, there's a lot of good stuff to to learn, learn there. Think about all the robots that are being used, you know, for factories or right. you know, all those kinds of things. Yeah, it makes sense. Makes me, 
while you're describing that, I was remembering like playing the ancient game Lunar Lander. <laughs> yeah. Back in the yeah. arcade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I played a lot of that myself. Exactly. It's like, okay, this could uh, train that pretty easily. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. A lot less the dynamics. So cool. All right. Well, this next one is a video course, but it's actually a series of video courses that Christopher Trudeau, previous guest, has created based on an article that was from Dan Bader, but it's really a whole chapter from his book, mm-hmm. Python Tricks. And it's all about you know selecting the ideal data structure is how we kind of reformatted it. So I worked with Christopher to figure out a way that we could present this massive article as a set of courses. And between him and myself, we've said, okay, well, maybe we divide it into three pieces. And so far, the other couple courses had come out. And just recently, the third part has now finally come out. So the entire series is available as video courses on on Real Python. And a lot of it's free. You can you can check it out and and see if you're interested and you know get a chance to check out some of it. And it dives into you know, the topic that you were mentioning at the top of, of the, the show here of when would you want to use a, a name tuple versus, you know, this structure or that structure. And so the first set of lessons, uh, the first course was on dictionaries and arrays, kind of talking about like, okay, dictionaries, uh, mapping and hash tables. And then he really hones in on why you would want to use maybe the built-in dictionary in a lot of those cases. Something that we've mentioned before, the ordered uh, dictionary, um, why you might want to go back and use that in that case. Default dict, yeah, where you can have stuff built in for that. And we've we've had other articles and other kind of deep dives on this. What's nice is it like, even though we have all these real deep dives on a lot of these structures, this kind of is like this really nice survey across all of them. And then it it adds the little bit of extra advice, like, okay, well, commonly you would probably use this. And this is why um, at the end of each one of these sections. So, you know, a whole thing on dictionaries, even chain map and mapping proxy type, and then an area on arrays. And if you're not familiar with that in Python, uh, an array would be a list or a tuple in most cases. And then there are things like typed arrays and strings, and then even getting into binary arrays. So then it, the second part, the second course that was divided into it was talking about having records, um, things that you could kind of think of like sort of database structural sort of things, things that might be a class or we mentioned it before, a name tuple, why you may want to just simply use a dictionary versus you know a tuple or a class or a name tuple. And then also mentioned structs. And then again, what would be an ideal data structure for the project that you're working on? And then it goes into uh, sets and frozen sets and multi-sets, um, and this thing called the counter, um, which is a really kind of interesting class. The most recent one that just came out is about stacks and queues. And if you're not familiar with a stack, that sort of structural thing is where you have sort of what's called last in, first out, sort of like a stack of plates. Um, as you add an additional plate on top of the stack, you're most likely going to take the top plate <laughs> off <laughs> of that and not go for the bottom plate. And so that that kind of LIFO last in first out structure and how lists are typically used for that. But in some cases, depending on what you're wanting to do, um, there is another one called a deck, which is spelled D-E-Q-U-E. 
and also something called a LIFO queue, which can be imported in. And again, why would you want to use one or the other? And then he goes into queues and queues are much more of the idea sort of first in, first out, kind of like a, you know, queuing up for a line to go on a ride or something like that. Yeah. Um, hopefully, <laughs> structurally, that's how it should run. No one cutting in line. And it talks about, you know, using a list for that or, in, again, maybe a deck. And then actual, uh, the queue, and then um, kind of goes into, this is where it sort of dives into this deep idea of parallelism. And again, um, where you may want certain structures depending on how you're set up your code. And he goes into some kind of nice deep examples of like, you know, where if you're doing parallel type of computing, you may want to pick one over another. And then it ends up on something called the priority queue and um, the heap queue inside of there. So again, yeah, it's very detailed. We had mentioned it way back in episode 27, the article coming out when we had uh, Jim Anderson on. Uh, we talked about the common Python data structures. And then this is just sort of a restructuring of that with a lot of additional advice and really great deep dive into all those areas and it made sense to to cut it up otherwise it would have been a huge single course yeah so, so check it out yeah yeah it's good stuff and you know it's it just is one of the beauties of the python standard library that you get yeah whenever you install python is that you get all this stuff out of it and you know i think you know most people are familiar with the built-in data structures like lists and tuples and strings and dictionaries and sets and that kind of stuff but you know there's so many other data structures out there yeah varieties and python has a very wide selection of them that are ready to go you don't have to implement any of this stuff yourself and a lot of them are implemented extremely well and are you know very efficient and optimized yeah optimized and so it they're, they're really good good choices for that they're not the only choices i mean you have lots of other libraries and that you can you can pick from but but yeah and so you know once once you've kind of reached that level where you're ready to sort of dive into this stuff then it's great to have these resources because there's a lot that just plain old python has available to you yeah not needing to roll your own version of a lot of these things though we do have uh examples <laughs> yeah sometimes if you wanted to if you're if you're wanting to learn more about you know algorithms and right different ways of implementing the stuff on your own but yeah, it's it's neat to kind of see it all and kind of get get an, get an idea so that you can go in to a situation, a programming situation, and really have a good idea of like, okay, for my specific use case, this is probably the best idea. Right. So yeah. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. It's the one that I was mentioning earlier in the show. When you're starting a project, one of the big decisions you need to make is how you're going to store and work with data. And Python provides a variety of built-in tools. In previous episodes, we already featured the first part of the three-part series, which was about dictionaries and arrays. This time, we're featuring the recently released third part. It's titled Stacks and Queues, Selecting the Ideal Data Structure. And now, all three of the courses are ready for you to check out on RealPython. And they're all based on a RealPython article by Dan Bader. In the course, previous guest Christopher Trudeau takes you further into the wide variety of built-in mechanisms Python has to meet your data structure needs. In this course, you'll learn about how stacks are defined with last-in and first-out semantics, how to use the collection's deck object, which stands for double-ended queue, 
How concurrency will affect your choice. What are priority queues? Which data structure methods are thread safe? And how to decide between all of the implementations of these data structures. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn the variety of ways of storing and managing your data in Python programs. The choice of the right data structure will affect not only the readability of your code, but also the ease of writing and performance. And again, as a reminder, there are two other parts of the series. The first is about dictionaries and arrays, and the second is about data records and sets. Each one dives into the variety of choices and advantages those different types have over one or another. Our video courses are broken into easily consumable sections. And where needed, we include code examples for the techniques shown. And all the courses have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out these video courses. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find them using the newly enhanced search tool on realpython.com. All right, we're diving into projects. What do you got? Yeah, so I guess mine is, it is a project. It's not an open source project, but it is someone's project. But uh, before I get to it, I wanted to start with just a quick mention of another Reddit thread yeah. that I found that uh, it, it says, do you, do you also use the Python console and the Python math libraries as a calculator? And it's a kind of a thread of people just talking about how, you know, if they need to do some quick calculations and they're on their computer, they can quickly open a terminal, start Python, and then just immediately start, you know, doing that and not have to you know, use a calculator app or pull out their phone or, you know, have a desktop calculator or something like along those lines. And it's got some good tips and tricks in it on how you can do that. But the reason I bring it up is that the project is kind of the complete opposite of this. This is from Texas Instruments. It's a new TI-84 calculator, which I think anyone who has gone to high school in the U.S. Yeah. in the last, I don't know, 15 to 20 years or so yeah, is probably used a TI-83 or an 84 and, uh, and knows these things. Well, now there's a new one. It's a TI-84 plus CE Python. And the calculator has Python built into it. So I remember, I, I can't remember exactly, I, I think it was some like variant of like basic or something that they had on these mm, calculators. Yeah. Uh, it's been so long since I've, I've used one, but you could do some like little scripting and some little things like that. But, but the, the programming language was not super user-friendly. And I think, you know, there were a few nerds that were like myself in class that they would get into it and try to, you know, mess around with it. But for the most part, people never messed with that part of the calculator. So now on this new one, which is I don't think is available yet, and I, I don't see on the website like when it's going to be available, other than I think saying it says fall 2021. But now it comes with Python built in, so you can actually code in Python on the calculator which is interesting. I'm not sure how great of an experience, like my big question <laughs> is like, how am I going to enter the code? Like how yeah, typing in, there's no not autocomplete. It's not like an ID or anything. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's still a really cool, you know, development. This is if, if this is something that students start using, I mean, this puts Python in the hands of students all over, yep. potentially all over the U S and other, in other countries, if they decide to adopt these, uh, these calculators. So, so yeah, I just thought it was funny. I was already reading this Reddit thread do you use Python as a calculator? Well, now you can use Python on your calculator. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I'm, it's, I'm excited by seeing more and more places, Python being used more and more devices, accepting it, you know, go, going into like the project I mentioned earlier, the, you know, circuit Python and, 
I keep seeing all these different versions of Raspberry Pis in different sizes and so forth. And so it, it's neat to see Python kind of expand out in all these different areas and widen it up. And yeah, it's cool. So it does have a little editor built into it okay. with menu selections, color coding assists. You save your little code yeah. scripts and... Okay. It's got a shell built into it. So it's got the Python shell. It has a little file manager they've added to it. They've got their own plotting library called Plotlib <laughs> uh, to visualize stuff with it. And uh, so it's interesting. I just wonder, like, can you like connect like a Bluetooth keyboard to this thing? I don't know. I don't, I'm trying to see if there's any anything here to make it easier to actually enter. Fully want to be QWERTY kind of thing? or Right. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. I don't know. Well, my next one is one that you found that's uh, about spelling and spell checks. Yeah. And it's by Victor Shepelovev. And he has a blog. He's actually, a, a by trade, sort of a Ruby programmer. And he goes by the name, I don't know if I could pronounce it, but Zevrok, <laughs> Z-V-E-R-O-K. And a Zevrok with Ruby is his blog. And so he went down this massive rabbit hole over the last year and a half or so, and he started working on porting this thing called Hun Spell, H-U-N Spell, Mm -hmm. which is a kind of popular spell checker that's out there in kind of the open source, and uh, it's up there on GitHub. He wanted to make it work in Python, uh, not only to learn Python, but also to learn about spell checkers. And... um, (laughs) It's funny, the blog, I won't spoil it for anybody, but it's a really kind of a fun journey. Um, I'll include the link to it, but it's just basically, I'll I'll include the top line of it. I spent a year building a spell checker and all I got is some grumbling to share. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of fun to follow through and kind of think about like, okay, well, what, what you may think as a simple domain problem and all the different variables that go into something when you really get inside of it and start to put it to use, it just goes exponentially, just like language itself, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, the things that can happen. And so um, another little area I'll share is just some of the things that you may th- not think about when you're trying to deal with, you know, spelling something is just things have changed in style. His example of, of Google becoming a verb you know, right? <laughs> you know, in, in not only, you know, present tense, but past tense Googled, you know, right. And things like that, you know, it's kind of crazy. And then just the idea of like words change their meaning when they're surrounded with other words and the topic of the text, is it technical? Is it, you know, is it in a certain domain? I deal with it all the time with European spellings, got a lot of <laughs> Europeans and Canadian people working for me. And um, I have to catch their spelling sometimes with bonus E's and U's in there and stuff. Yeah. It's like, uh, okay. <laughs> it's neat. It's a neat project. And the project's called Spills. I don't know if I even mentioned it. So S-P-Y-L-L-S. Um, and actually is something that you can just pip install. He, he has put it up on PyPI. And it's a neat project to, to check out if you're interested in in uh, kind of learning a little more about how a spell checker could work. And again, it implements the Hun spell, which is again a popular uh, spell checker that's out there. And so you could, again, import it and use it in something that you're, you're creating. If you need additional spell checking, you're thinking of making a, uh, a text editor or what have you, which is a common little project that some people 
like to add. This would be a neat feature you could add in with this extra library. Yeah. But yeah, check it out. So uh, spills spelled with a, a Y instead of an E. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that covers it for this week of high coders stuff. Yeah. We talked about a lot of stuff today. Yeah, I know. We covered a lot of different areas. We <laughs> yeah. have so many bonus uh, additional articles and areas for people to check out. So Good stuff. Great. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Yep. Thanks, Chris. See you later. All right. Bye. And don't forget, you can get started on DigitalOcean's app platform for free at do.co slash realpython. That's do.co slash realpython. I want to thank David Amos for joining me again this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.